Vintage Sustainability, a podcast where Gordon and John look back at 25 years of sustainable buildings. So here we are, John. Cafe Central. Cafe Central, Northumbria University, yes. Just off Northumbria Road. Yes. Of course, when we worked here, Northumbria Road was like a, a large car park. Yes. But now it's been pedestrianised. It's really part of the campus. It's such it an improvement, is, Yes, it? you used to drive down here, didn't you? Yes, yes. that's where you can't, yes. You know, when I first came here... In 1976, my first day was a bit late. I drove down this road and parked to the far end, and I got the first ever apartment ticket in the United States. Congratulations. <laughs> it's the beginning of an illustrious career. I think it was £16 fine. Oh. But you know, we had a grant. <laughs> so we're here going to see Professor Ruth Dalton. Uh-huh. Yes. Who used to be my boss. Oh, yes, she in was the school, head yes. Of the head of school, head of built environment. Uh-huh, good. The thing is, I want to ask her, um, she's just completing a book now. Uh-huh, right. And she's been given a week's extension. Yes. But we are here as displacement activity. Yes. So I'm going to ask Do we really want to put this in? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to ask her what the book is. That's Ruth. So with Professor Ruth Dalton. Uh, head of the department, as was, now professor doing research and writing books. Mm-hmm. And I was telling Gordon before we, we got here that this cancer is displacement activity from, <laughs> from your book. So do you want to start by telling us what the book is that isn't quite finished yet? Oh, the book that's not quite finished. Um, actually, there's two. So uh, there's one that I think came out about a week ago, but I haven't actually seen it yet. And it's by Routledge, and it's called Future Homes. All right. And uh, that's with this um, amazing young academic called um, Alejandro, who's up at the University of Strathclyde. And he's this amazing guy because he's he's actually an academic, but also um, he's a certified passive house designer. And he has a twin brother back in Mexico with whom he also has a practice. um, They develop passive houses in Mexico, which is just amazing. So he and I edited this book together um, called Future Homes and it was really trying to um, take a 10-year sort of horizon scan on what we thought were going to be the main trends and disruptions and things, Um, you know, sort of taking that kind of horizon scan. So that's just come out and I haven't actually even seen a copy or got my hands (coughs) on a copy yet. As you know, this is called Vintage Sustainability. Mm. I tend to look back over the last 20, 25 years as to where mm-hmm. how the system yeah. has evolved. So I was wondering if we could start off by you giving us a bit of a feeling for where sustainability has been as an influence in, in architecture. Okay. I remember one thing I forgot to ask is, can I swear on oh, this podcast? Oh, yes, you swear. Swear. I'll have to edit it out. But you can swear. <laughs> Well, one of my earliest memories, so I went to, I started studying architecture in the late 80s at the Bartlett at UCL. And I remember probably in my first or second year, we were in a usual crit, you know, the whole year had pinned up around the wall. And one of my students, it must have been my first year actually, so one of my fellow students had a scheme on the wall that incorporated some sustainable elements. And the reviewers just sat there, and one of them basically said, we don't do that green shit here at the Bartlett. And that pretty much set the tone for my undergraduate years. I mean, this person got slammed, had a really low mark, 
And, and the message was quite clear. You know, we don't do that green shit at the Bartlett. This was the Bartlett of the late 80s. So the late yeah. 80s. So, um, so I think, you know, one of the things that, that runs through all our thoughts on Vintage Sustainable is that the arrival of the Briam tool mm-hmm. for good and ill. Um, you know, we, we, we worked as assessors and we, we looked at its influence and hadn't arrived then. Mm-hmm. At 88, 89, mm-hmm. it arrived um, at that point. So that is so, right. So, so, is... so I'm probably talking, I think this comment, the we don't do green shit here, I think uh, was probably 1988. Yes. So, so very so different we're, we're now. Like, do we do green shit here now? At the Bartlett? No, at, yeah. at, at Northumbria. Um, I think they do green shit both here at Northumbria <laughs> and at the Bartlett now. <laughs> Um, but it was interesting because my third year project, obviously I managed to squeeze some green shit in because um, my third year project was actually this scheme on um, Dunstable Downs and uh, there's this big escarpment where they do sort of gliding and uh, I take my kids to fly kites there. But I proposed, I spent a lot of time researching uh, wind turbines and I basically proposed... Um, what, if it had ever been built, would have been the largest wind turbine in Europe. It was sort of taller than the post office towers. This, you know, yes. huge thing right on the top of Dunstable Downs, and so that was my sort of third year now, fi- final thesis project. You know, so so well, I mean, um, I think actually, in, in the kind of middle ground between the green shit and the ice saws. I think my critics were less concerned about the eyesore and more concerned about the green shit at the time. Oh. So, um, so now I, I, my recollection is it went down quite well. So, oh, you know, really... it, it was very much considered as this other thing that, that you know people wearing sandals and you know the kind of ex hippies did and not normal. Ma- it wasn't normal mainstream. No, back I then. think I think I remember John early days when we did our first assessment work to see sort of what the tool was about. We'd go to a design and then we'd have to go out a green guide to construction which which said which window frames are the most sustainable oh, through recycling, production, extraction. And I think it what most people didn't have a copy of it, so we mm-hmm. talked to a practice and they'd say, Well, we need to look at the green guide. I don't think it had actively selected materials for the designs based on green guide in even by the year 2000 is my feeling. Suddenly, mm-hmm. once they got through this loop a number of times, they sort of were more aware of it. Mm-hmm. But I think I remember going to the architectural practice and said, oh, everybody's got that on their desk by now. And this yes. is probably 2008. So yes. I think there was a kind of a flip over yes. there. I mean, that's 20 years though, isn't it? Oh, yes. I mean, you, yeah. <laughs> that's a fairly slow flip. <laughs> yes, <that's right>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in, I don't know how well you know the tool, but whether you think... The process where, and often the building's mm. already been designed, mm. you go through a long checklist of small things. Mm-hmm. Does it create great architecture? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, and the obvious first answer is that it depends entirely what you think of as great. Mm-hmm. And the trouble is we tend to have a very... Um, the, the, the official word is oculus-centric... So we tend to prioritise vision, appearances, how things look, you know, so we judge buildings by, yes. by the appearance, you know, and particularly in architecture school. 
you know, so what something looks like. Um, it, there's a lot of talk nowadays about experiential architecture, what it feels, you know, as you move around and you're inhabiting it. And, you know, that's more my research area, moving around and um, the, more the psychology of buildings. And it's interesting, you could have two buildings that visually would look identical. I will posit this to you. Yes. So visually from the outside, they look the same. You move around inside, they look the same. What appear to be the same finishes. And yet we know that one of them could be a sustainable building and one of them could be whatever the opposite of unsustainable. Um, Now, would one of those be a greater building than another? And I can certainly think of buildings that are lauded yeah. as being great. I mean, and we have so many awards that are given to, yes. you know, to, to buildings. Um, I mean, one building that I've studied a lot is um, the Seattle Central Library. <clears throat> and uh, um, I've spent about 10 years studying this. It's kind of the, the gift that keeps on giving. Right. And what's so great about this as a building is that uh, this is a building that had won every accolade going at the time. It was the... Um, AIA uh, gold medal of the year it was Time Time magazine building of the year, did you even know Time magazine do building of the I year? I didn't I mean it literally won every accolade so which is it? Uh, it's um, OMA, so Rem Callhouse um, the Seattle Central Library in the middle of Seattle so it was built in 2006 I think and, um, and the reason why this came onto our radar is that we were interested in how people made sense of and understood buildings and moved around them. And, um, and we began to hear anecdotally that this was a building that people found really confusing and disorienting and um, you know, people were having panic attacks in there, you know, <coughs> getting lost in there, couldn't find their way out. And at the same time, it had won every award the profession could throw at it. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy to find bad buildings that are bad on every criteria, and including sustainability in here. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. they look bad, they feel bad, um, <coughs> you know, they are bad. The, the, they're just bad, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, but to actually, for us to find this building that was held up as, you know, an epitome of what we should all be aspiring to, and that the user experience was so. Um, at, at odds with that for us meant that you know this was we, we needed it really piqued our curiosity yes. it meant you know we wanted to find out more and so much so you know it ended up sort of ultimately becoming a, a book um, so in the same way I would suggest that you know here was a book that sorry here was a book here was a building that was considered to be a great building but from a user experience was really poor You know, I think in the past, I mean, we're getting much better at this with our awards and things, but I think in the past, if you were to scrutinise, probably up to about five years ago, many of the buildings that won awards were, you know, were considered by the profession to be great buildings, and then look to see how sustainable most of those are, I would suggest that probably very few of them, you know. It's it's only just now that, you know, this is starting to be a criteria in the... In awards. So the Seattle building might visually mm. look fantastic. Yeah. Um, but the experience of being in the building mm. is the other thing that people yeah. have. They have the yeah. visual experience, yeah. then they have the experience of actually mm. using the building mm. for whatever function yeah. it is. Yeah. And you're saying that, that in the case of the library yeah. wasn't yes. great. Yes. So it's not a great building. Yeah. So <laughs> what, what, just briefly, yeah. what were the major features that made this such a nightmare for you? 
Um, a whole number of things. So uh, one of the, I mean, it was very clearly a building that was designed to be viewed at from certain locations. It was very clear there was these certain sweet spots where, you know, I mean, in a way, I love this building and I hate this building. I mean, there are, you know, the, these certain classic views that come up on all the photographs again and again where it's just, it's fabulous, it looks great. Um, there was this massive um, escalator that went from the seventh, the fifth floor to the eleventh floor, only stopping off at the seventh floor. So it went up to this um, amazing reading room on top. I mean, it was sort of all sort of, um, you know, this sort of diamond faceted glass. So it just mm -hmm. felt like this amazing glass, almost conservatory reading room on top. But people would take this escalator going all the way up to the top and then have a look at this amazing space. And then clearly they went to go back down again and realised that the escalator was only an up escalator. <laughs> so there was no actual way. You couldn't repeat yes. your journey. It was like a one-way system within a building. And buildings aren't normally designed to have yeah. one-way systems yes, in them. Sure. So there's just a lot about it that from a navigational, particularly vertical navigation point of view, was very, very confusing. What sort of good buildings within the region in the last 20 years would you hope it was an example of? In this region? Yeah, yeah. The, the Probably the standout one for me is the sill oh, on yes. Hadrian's Wall. Yes. Um, and I was privileged enough to get to, because it was still on site, uh -huh. while I was actually... Yeah. Um, that was JDDK, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. So I got to interview the project architect at JDDK. I got to go around, managed to um, catch a site visit while it was still on site. Who was the architect? Alison Thornton. Yeah. Oh, we might go and talk about Alison. Yeah. Because it is naturally ventilated. Yep. And I did visit on a very hot day a few years ago, and it was nice and cool inside, and I did wonder whether... Anyone is doing any performance on the building now, five or six years? It would years be later. really interesting to I know. I think, and perhaps yeah. if we talk to yeah. Alison at JDDK, mm. we might, yes, we have, we might get a ch chance because I thought it was an excellent building. Mm -hmm. Just, it was a great building, yeah. and yeah. the fact it was naturally ventilated yeah. is yeah. sort of quite And, key. you know, they'd also made a real effort to use local materials and local stones. So, you know, did you see the Gabian? Uh, baskets, all that stone is kind of the same, you know, sort of uh, local stone that the windsill is made of, and you know, oh, so it's. Okay. Um. <laughs> so, um, another part of Brian, just going back mm. to this very yeah. sort of list of things to check, was something like daylight, which in my experience, the, the, the way they dealt with daylight was very straightforward and technical, really. If you had a daylight factor of higher than 2%, mm -hmm. Over 80% of the floor plate, you got the credit. If it was higher than that, I think you got two credits. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't think I was ever on a project that ever got the credit. Okay. Because that's really tough. Yeah. Doesn't sound tough, but it is really tough. I mean, it's, it's interesting. So, you know, things I've looked at in terms of windows, um, first of all, going, you know, the wayfinding navigation, windows are incredibly important for orientation. You know, so being able to get regular glimpses of the outside help you reorient in, reorient yourself in terms of your mental model of where you are in the building and in the building in relation to the outside. Um, so again, one of the problems with some of the floors in the Seattle Central Library, um, they had this one floor 
um, where everything was painted red. The floor, the walls, the ceiling, all glossy red. It felt like being in some strange room and no windows at all, so you never got any views out. And you were just in this entirely red floor that was very different to any other floor. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so there's something incredibly important about having those views outside to reorient yourself and, you know, have this sense of, um, uh, you know, your location in the building and in relation to the, you know, the immediate world outside the building. They certainly know you're on the red floor. <laughs> but was there a reason for being red? It was just an architectural conceit. Well, um, it, I was actually talking to one of the, the local architects, because um, actually it was what I should have said was it was OMA, but they partnered with a local firm. OMA wouldn't talk to us, but we managed to talk to the, uh-huh. the local project architect. And he just said it was like somebody came up with it as an idea and they ended up running with it. You know, let's have this floor that's entirely red. Mm-hmm. I'll show you some pictures after this. It's amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, so, 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 so one view is orientation. Um, another view, you know, from the more aesthetic point of view is the idea of sort of framing views and, you know, sort of curating that architectural experience. So, you know, and this is something, you know, some of the visitor centres in my visitor centre book did really well, you know, actually taking sort of certain... Because obviously visitor centres, by their definition, yes. tend to be built in, you know, quite often exceptionally stunning locations like the sill is built on the edge of the Northumbrian National Park so you you have these amazing views to the outside so a lot of them really took advantage of that by very carefully considering you know where windows were placed and actually curating those series of views and experience and then there's a whole other bit of research around health and well-being so you know there's some classic studies that have said you know if you're in a, a hospital ward the recovery rates yes, are higher for, for you know the people yeah, near yes. the, um, the you know with the views out of the window mm-hmm. um, and views of nature than you know those that don't have it. So it's it's actually you know you think it's just as simple as you know a window and daylight, but there's just many layers yes. of how it contributes yeah. to yeah. our experience in terms of connection mm-hmm. with the external environment mm-hmm. and making sure the building has that mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing. How do you put a number on it? Yeah, how do you put a number on it? At which point it, it, it can't be in the tool. Yeah. So suddenly the tool then is not really covering, it's only covering things mm-hmm. it can easily measure, which is mm-hmm. fair enough, it's that sort of tool. But there are so many things you can't measure that are mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. And I guess people, I guess in a way, sometimes worry that the architect might be saying, well, you can't measure my vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, but it might not be right, like mm-hmm. the, the, the Seattle Library. So I, you can see why measurement yeah. becomes kind of dominant think, thing. I think you probably could measure it, actually. Do I okay. do. So, <clears throat> um, so there's this, this concept called the Isobist, which was developed by Michael Benedict in a paper in 1979. And what it does is it takes... Um, at a high height, will take a horizontal slice through the available visual field. And so from any point, you know, you'll have an isovist from you over there, you'll have one, you'll have one. In, in a room like this, they'll broadly be overlapping. I mean, you can probably see a little bit of that alcove there that I can't see. So, you know, you can compute the isovist from any location, um, those isovists have properties, so you know how the area, how much can I see, um, you know the area to perimeter ratio, how rounded or how spiky is this isovist. Um, it will have 
Um, you know, what's the longest line of sight from here? So, um, and then if you... Um, so there's quite a few tools that do isovist analysis. Now, I've done a huge amount of isovist oh, analysis okay. in the past. But if you actually particularly were to look at the views, the isovist through windows, what you would actually be able to do is to say, you know, if I'm sitting here, what proportion of my isovist is interior versus what proportion is exterior? So that would give you a ratio. So my ratio between my exterior views and my interior views. Um, I mean, it was interesting. Um, that one book that's really underrated is by this guy called Philip Steele, who was from the University of Washington. It's called People, Paths and Purposes. And what he does is he actually gives a... We use these terms in architecture, like a glimpse or a view or a vista. And he actually gives a, a very specific... So I think in his view, a glimpse was anything up to 10 degrees. Oh, right. And a view was up to... 30, you know, So he kind of goes, you know, actually quantifies how many... What the field of view of these things is. So again, you could actually begin to say, you know... You, could, yeah. you know, are you just getting a glimpse of the outside? Are you getting a vista? Or a panorama was anything more than 180 degrees. So if you were, you know, in a sort of... You know, large floor-to-ceiling glazed wall. You know, you'd have your panoramic view to outside. Or if you had a slim window, and you might just get a ten-degree, you know, view outside. So you could actually quantify not only the ratio of outside to inside, but also what your field of view to outside was. So, you know, was it a glimpse or a vista or a panorama or something? So I think all these things could be so quantified. Any, you know, most designers do in sort of three D modeling. That you'd imagine that analysis. Mm. Is not so difficult if, if to put, to yeah. put in place. Yeah. There's a great bit of software written by uh, Sam Mucklehiney from um, the Canterbury School of Art called Isovists. If you go to isovist.org and that does isovist analysis, a really, really nice bit of software. Mm-hmm. Ruth, can you tell me the stuff you with uh, Tom Hedwig? Yeah, so um, I, I kind of got involved probably about 15 months ago now. So I was asked to contribute to um, a special edition of A&U magazine uh, writing about emotion and architecture. And uh, so I was quite... I, I mean, it's sort of something I've been on the edge of for a while, and I was quite interested to take that on as a challenge and write this piece. Um he, he does have a bit of a um, bee in his bonnet about boring buildings. Um, and I think that slightly takes away from the central idea of the, the humanise yes. campaign, which is very much more about well-being and you know, trying to design buildings that people enjoy spending time in mm. and are feeling good about. Um, he does make this really interesting observation about sustainability, actually, which I hadn't really thought about it before. And he said, you know, if you design a building that everybody loves, they're not going to tear it down 10 years later. Mm-hmm. You know, because if you design a building that, you know, makes people feel good and make, he talks about joy. When was the last time you actually heard a, an architect or a developer or a designer talk about joy? So he talks about, you know, joyful buildings. Mm-hmm. So if you design a building that people will feel joyful about yes. or will love, then they're going to want to keep it, mm-hmm. you know. And at the moment, I mean, what is it that's the current life expectancy of a building? 
it's less than 20 years now, isn't it? It's ridiculous. It is. You know, we, yeah, you know we, we put these buildings up, we take them down again. From a sustainability point of view, that's terrible. What we need to do is we need to design buildings that last. Okay, so, Ruth, can you remember what car you learned to drive in? Did, well, you, did, did you give Ruth specific your first car? Well, well, the first... So, here's a story. So, the first car that I got when I came back from the States, because my first academic job was in um, was at Georgia Tech. Um, so, so, in fact, I, I had to drive, by the way, in the States, because um, I was living in Atlanta. Atlanta is famous, by the way, for its longest... Its, back then, it had the longest one-way commute of anywhere in the States. So it was a city that was designed around the car. And when I first went there, I basically expressed an opinion a view that I was going to live without a car and that I was going to get the bus to to work. And I was sitting with a bunch of faculty and they all looked completely aghast at this. And one of them said, you just don't get it. Professors do not ride the bus. So that was me, I was told. So so I then realised I had to get a car in the US. And I remember going to um, see, uh, going to a car salesman, and I said, what's your most energy-efficient car, then? And they just looked at me blankly, and they said, we've never been asked that question before <laughs> in our lives. When was this? Uh, 2000. Oh. And, um, you know, and they said, well, what do you like? I said, I don't care. I just want to get from A to B. I have no opinion of what the car looks like or its colour or anything else. Oh, I, you, know, I, you know, what's its energy efficiency? And they just couldn't answer that. But my first car coming back from the States was, and I guarantee you will never have heard of this before. Have you ever heard of the Riva G-Wiz? Oh, you know, is it a boxy, strange... So, so it, was, it was one of the first electric cars available in the UK, and it was about the size of one of the smart cars, so it sort of had two proper front... It had two no, proper... It was, yeah, I mean, it was kind no. of basically, it was a golf cart. Um, <laughs> so it had two, um, two front seats, and then this sort of half-seat back seat. Oh. So it wasn't, wasn't a fully, you know full-size car it had a top speed of 40 miles per hour but what they didn't tell you was this was 40 miles an hour going downhill with a good headwind (laughs) and I won't even tell you what its range was I mean I suffered from we had it for a year and the range anxiety I had in that year and the problem was we'd been living in London we didn't initially when we came back from the States went back to our old house in London and then immediately moved to Milton Keynes and the Reva G Wiz had made a lot of sense in London. But in Milton Keynes, with the grid um, system, basically the, it, the speed limit on those grid roads is 70 miles per hour. So, um, and if you're doing a top speed of 40 miles per hour, I used to get people, you know, behind me, beeping me. So I had to find, if I was travelling anywhere in Milton Keynes, I had to find the routes through the grid squares <laughs> instead of around them. Um, it was just a complete nightmare and I also remember um, one day I was driving somewhere and there was a bunch of schoolboys who saw me laughed and then decided to race me (laughs) on foot I will add they weren't on bicycles or anything and you know what they almost beat me as well Um, so we had this um, gee whiz for a year and we decided we made the very difficult decision that we were going to sell it before it depreciated too much. 
Um, and at that time in London, they were still, you know, a, you know, those very, very popular in London. But in Milton Keynes, it was just a disaster. So we decided to get rid of it. And then when they came to pick it up, because we sold it, we sold it back to the the dealer. And he looked at our range and he goes, "Oh, your your um, range battery meter hasn't been calibrated properly." So the reason I'd had really bad range anxiety for a whole year was it was basically telling me that it was half empty when it was still full. You know, so it had a range of about I thought it had a range of about twenty miles. So you know, it was just the parents like, are very oh, really, so as an really. Do you not think of Cars have been skipped to old wheels. Do you not think you're going to from the yeah, No, I'm afraid not. Well, OK, so after the Reva G Wiz, we yes. then had... We'll be finding a picture of the Reva G Wiz. You, you oh, must yes, do. It was. Honestly, I mean, when you've been outraced by schoolboys and, you know, the, the butt <coughs> of everybody's jokes... Um, but then we ha- we went for three hybrids, uh, so we had um, uh, t- three Toyota Priuses in succession, and now we actually have a Tesla, so we've actually gone back to an electric car again. And what you're saying about aesthetics, you know, actually, if you compare the Reva G Wiz to the Tesla, I mean, there's just no comparison. And I must admit, I do actually rather enjoy, um, I am rather enjoying the Tesla. It's the Model so, 3 or a Model 3. I don't think we'll find an engine noise for the Reva G Wiz, but we will look for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, John, here we are in Tiny Tiny. Yes. Oh, you got right? Semi basement calf. Semi basement calf. Of um, Margaret Crescent, as was. Oh, what was it? Margaret Crescent. It used to be oh. where the bus station was. Yes, Margaret bus station. Around the corner. So, um, Ruth, interesting. Very interesting. Very interesting. A couple of things to follow up as well, I think. Yes, uh, yes. You know, some of how you measure joy. Um, and then the sale building, which she pointed out she liked. So, thank you. So, perhaps we'll uh, see if we can talk to someone at JDK yes. at the sale, perhaps a visit to the sale. That would be nice. Okay. That's what we look for next. That's good. Okay. And you know, any of those that overseas listener, yes. if they ever want to get in touch, we'd be really interested to know who you are. Anyhow. Where's our new overseas listener? Oh, Egypt? I think we had an Egypt, Egypt listener and an Australian Fantastic. listener and a Turkish listener uh, recently. We're so, a global country. <laughs> okay.